Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia InsureTech podcast. This is the only podcast in Asia focused on insurance that gives entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and investors a platform to discuss how technology is reshaping the insurance industry in Asia and globally. Today, I'm joined by Yashish Daya, the founder and chief executive officer at Policy Bazaar. Yashish, it's great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Michael. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you. It's really awesome to have you on. What do you think is the biggest trend in InsureTech in India today? Uh, I think the biggest trend in InsureTech in India is a rising awareness in consumers around the need for insurance and around what kind of insurance they need. That is, uh, what are the parts which if they go wrong, they cannot handle? And what the consumers are realizing is that is health insurance and life insurance. If uh, they were to expire, uh, as in they were to not be alive, then they don't have enough money to for their families to continue without their salaries, right. without their incomes. And if they went to hospital, the cost of hospitalization is very high and it's not something they have financially prepared for. So both of these realizations are high in the consumer's mind and they are rising fast. And what that does is provides the insurers an opportunity to assess customers because please understand a lot of uh, India is not salaried. There's a lot of uh, small and medium enterprises. Uh, they don't have enough income documents to support, which you gravely require when you need life insurance. So there's a lot of work going on in parallel in trying to understand which risk to underwrite, which risk not to take on, what, what prices the risk should be uh, taken up at. Uh, so I think the uh, the understand the need for ri- for risk coverage by consumers, especially for health and life insurance, and the understanding of that risk by insurance companies and the pricing of that long term commitment that the insurers are putting in place, is the largest uh, single macro trend that I see. It's been going on for the last ten years. I think it'll go on for the next twenty years. Look, that's that's fascinating and a great answer. And before I get back to this relationship between data, risk analysis, and risk pricing, can you just back up for a little bit and share some of your background for our listeners with the knowledge that you've been at this for a while, probably longer than most people, but just for some context. So we started in 2008. Prior to that, uh, I worked at Bain & Company as a strategy consultant. Got it. Prior to that, I worked for four or five years in India in various roles. In, in the interim between Bain and Policy Bazaar, I spent some time uh, at a company called eBookers, which was a FTSE listed, uh, FTSE 250 company. It was an online uh, travel agency, uh, which was sold to Sendent in uh, 2005. Policy Bazaar started in 2008. And uh, of course, me, along with uh, Alok and Avanish and a few other co-founders, uh, we started the company together with the idea of uh, making sure consumers understand insurance better and uh, buy more transparently. But what was the idea back then? I mean, 2008, to me, doesn't sometimes feel that long ago. But boy, in internet time, it might as well be a different life ago, right? And its I feel like in a way you've had multiple iterations of this. But when you were back there in 2008, instead of going into the travel business or into the e-commerce business like everybody else you and your team decide to go into insurance. What was the driving factor behind that then? And then I have a follow-up after that. I think there were two parts. One was uh, we had done the online travel business, and I think uh, we very narrowly escaped. (laughs) 
good for you. In the, in the sense, uh, <laughs> we, we knew the margins and we knew how much differentiation you could have as a brand. Right. You know, we were glad we were bought out. Uh, I think uh, we did not want to go back into travel again. Uh, we did not want to go into something where the margins would be squeezed. And one of the interesting things that my ex-founder CEO used to say, I was the managing director at eBookers. He used to say, he said, look, I look in across Europe and I see all the travel agents really scrimping. And I see all these insurance agents really doing well. They all have personal trainers. Right. You know, when, when they've done 20 years in insurance and 20 years in travel agency, the insurance guys seem to be doing quite well. Uh, it was a very broad-based statement. He said, insurance is all digital. Uh, we don't understand why there needs to be anybody out there going to meet somebody, right? So in the sense, there is, there is nothing to be delivered. Like in an airline ticket, nothing had to be delivered. This also doesn't have any delivery. You just need to promise something, right? Right. We did not understand the insurance industry very well, but we understood this. When we came to India, because it, was, it wasn't one factor, it was two, three factors. When, we, when I came to India, I saw... Uh, my father had bought a lot of policies. A lot of other people had bought a lot of policies. Right. And there was a huge amount of mistrust because miscommunication was a large part of uh, selling what was sold as insurance. See, insurance had two areas. One was motor insurance and the second was investment products. And the investment products, when you're competing with fixed deposits and mutual funds, it's difficult to sell those investment products. So there's a lot of mis-selling, miscommunication that goes on. And the third thing I realized was uh, any person who wants to make a transaction happen would make it sound good. Like when we were selling ebookers, we were not touting the fact that, look, the margins are crashing and we have to sell. Right. right. We were telling them how great the European market was and, you know, how the American company would have a huge footprint across 13 countries. So in a similar manner, the agent does two jobs. He somewhere makes the product look better than it is. And the second thing he does especially in a risk product, is he says the customer is better than what the customer actually is. Right. Or he trains the customer to buy a policy, right? And I think the second part, the industry had no ability to handle. I could see that. You know, I could smell that. That once this agent actually starts misrepresenting the customer, the customer has no ability to handle it. It came from a very small experience. I tried to buy a health insurance policy. My weight back then was 96 kgs. But the proposal form had 72 kgs written in it. Nice. And I wondered, why would I write, if somebody asked me my weight, I can't say it's 72, it was 96. <laughs> it, was ob- it was obvious from looking, right? It was obvious from looking, and why would I even know that it's meant to be 72? Right. Right. But for right. my height, 72 was the perfect. So anyway, I think uh, that told me that this is something the industry is clearly not ready for. Uh, and neither was the customer there, now, nor was the industry there. So I saw it as a long-term trend, and I, you get those chances once in a lifetime. So we said, uh, we are going to do this. Back then, when you said you were going to do this, people must have looked at you like you were a little bit crazy because even then, even now, industry penetration, insurance penetration is just not that high, right? So I remember a conversation, like multiple conversations, but I remember one very critical conversation where the CEO of a life insurance company called me in and he says, are you crazy? You <laughs> actually think customers are going to come to you to buy insurance? He says, please understand, I pay people 10,000 rupees, which they can give to companies to cut through the customer to buy life insurance. So they say the customer buys life insurance. And like essentially what he was saying was he pays the customer 10,000 rupees to buy insurance. Right. And he says, still the customer does not buy insurance. And you are saying customers are going to line up on your 
stupid website <laughs> and actually look for life insurance or health insurance. Right. So he says, you're obviously smoking something which, you know, nobody else is. <laughs> and that was the broad thesis that insurance is sold, not bought. Right. So the customer will not get up in the morning and look for it. I thought it was a very, very critical component because uh, I had lost my uncle. I had lost a few friends and I had seen, I could see what the medical bills were. Right. So to me, it seemed like obvious that the people have to buy insurance. So yeah, there was there was that you know difference of opinion at least. Right. So just so you know, and a little background for you, my interest in insurance comes from the fact that my grandmother, way ahead of her time, um, was an actuary and worked at Aetna Insurance in the United States for years, probably a few decades. And at the end of her life, she was diagnosed with ALS. So I don't know if you're familiar with ALS. No, I'm not. So that's Lou Gehrig's disease. But Okay, yeah, now I know. But they wouldn't pay her medical bills. So mm. even though she was covered by some stuff, so I'm always thinking about like what was wrong then and how can we fix those things into today. But that's why I'm interested. It's not like this is just some random thing for me, right? I've been thinking yeah. about this for a while. Yeah. But yeah. something big changed for you as well, I think, back in 2015. Was that when you guys introduced your mobile app? Yeah, mobile app was obviously a necessity because uh, the customer was moving onto the mobile. We could see that trend. Yeah. And what we also realized was it's not just about... So initially, our thinking was we will let the customer know that these are the different options for him. And uh, he would choose one of them and uh, we would be done. But uh, it wasn't the case. We clearly needed to handhold the customer a lot more through the issuance process. Right. Uh, and uh, so that's medicals, documentation, uh, as well as claims in many cases where the customer wanted help during claims. And when a customer has a claim, he sometimes can't find his policy. So that is where the app really came from. It was more from a service perspective than from a sales perspective because there were very few customers who were just coming on an app and buying. Right. But from a service perspective, the app was very critical because all your documents could be saved there, all your uh, uh, claims could be made from there, a lot of uh, endorsements could be done from there. So there are a lot of pieces in insurance which can become fairly painful, which uh, we managed to automate through the app as well as the website. Yeah. And so one of the things you mentioned earlier was delivery, right? You made an analogy or a comparison to an airline ticket and an insurance policy. You said if for an insurance policy, you're delivering a promise, you're not actually delivering a physical thing that somebody needs to have. Do you think that over time, well, actually, I, I know the answer to this, but I want to phrase it differently. What do you think this use of data, this ability to be able to analyze risk in real time, which we've been doing in the financial services markets for two decades, right? It's going to have an impact on an agent's ability to sell a consumer the right product and then maybe reversing that lack of trust and misinformation that goes to the final policyholder so that they can't then say that somebody who weighs 92 kilos weighs 72 kilos. The biggest conflict I have between me and my team, and, and I think that's where a founder really comes in, Go ahead. is uh, my team believes if we were to relax some of our uh, conditions, we could do more business. Sure. And uh, they also believe, you know, that the industry does not, and this is a very harsh statement, they believe the industry actually does not care about profitability, all it wants is volume. So why are we so focused on profitability of the industry and making sure that, uh, you know, every policy we sell has got the right data and, uh, you know, etc, etc. 
I think that is exactly where any business business person and a founder start to differentiate because uh, I believe in the long run, you won't have a business if any distributor does not focus on profitability of the industry. That's obvious. Sure. sure. And what that implies is all those pieces of data, of analysis, of verification have to be there and cannot just be left to, you know, to, to chance. So I think uh, you, you, I think get the ethos there. The ethos is very much the business must be profitable for the industry at every stage. And, uh, you know, to be brutally honest, I have not come across a single distributor and I have probably met 500 in the last, you know, 12 years. I have not come across a single distributor who thinks that way that I have to make sure my business is profitable for the for the carrier. And the moment you think that way, you're sorted because then you will you will largely do the right things. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even really sure how to respond to that, except that over time, if you're not building a business where every one of your policies is profitable, you know, there used to be this joke on Saturday Night Live, right? I don't know if you're familiar with that TV show where they, would, they have this thing called the National Change Bank. You know, you give us a dollar, we give you four quarters. How do we make profit? I mean, yeah, how do you how do you make any money? Volume. It just didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's real. They actually had that thing. But the point is, I agree with you. If you can use the data to do real-time risk analysis and also educate the consumer on what the proper policy is, then over time, you're going to disintermediate those other 500 distributors because over time, they're going to go bankrupt at some level or just not be able to continue. So it makes a lot of sense to me. What are some of the other ways that you are using data and do you see this use of data accumulation over time as kind of a superpower for agents as well? I think um, absolutely. So uh, let me give you some examples of how we are using data and they're fairly basic. Uh, see, India has about one third of the people have a pre-existing disease or the other, mostly related to some level of cardiac problems or some level of, uh, you know, sugar levels, etc. Okay. Now people usually may not explicitly say they are diabetic but you know they may they may differentiate between type 1 type 2 etc etc however what we noticed a person also speaks with us before he purchases a policy and that speaking time is roughly 30 minutes to 90 minutes because they they have a lot of questions right right what we noticed was that some people would talk about things like insulin levels and some people just would not talk about them. So there was a bunch of people who knew about uh, diabetes and a bunch of people who did not know about diabetes at all. And what we figured was that the bunch of people who knew about diabetes, there was a very large correlation that they had diabetes, like the very, very large uh, overlap with those that had diabetes. And uh, hence, uh, the word uh, insulin uh, became a trigger. So the moment the word insulin is used, right. suddenly the medical levels go up. And uh, because we realize that our own agent also, who's on, the, who's on the phone with the customer, has an interest in closing the policy. So even he, despite all the checks and balances we put in place, will have an interest in somewhere guiding the agent, despite all the recordings and everything, and the strict action. Right. He will have a, he will have an objective towards non-disclosure. It's fundamental to any distributor. And hence, this particular uh, word being picked up at every stage would uh, basically make sure that more people have to undergo a physical medical. We later realized that physical medicals were not so helpful because even they could be uh, essentially managed. 
and so we started having uh, video based medicals and telemedicals and you know uh, having the doctor speak to the consumer directly etc etc so uh, it was an evolution similarly the word claim similarly the word uh, garage yeah you'd be so surprised in motor insurance just the fact that a customer used the word garage can almost double the claims ratio can double the claims ratio can why, double the claims ratio and why is that because it means they're so concerned about the state state of their car being protected because, that because they put uh, it in a garage fundamentally customers can be uh you know and th- these are these are these are sort of you know politically incorrect statements but i just you know it is what say it is. them the way they are yeah there's a certain set of customers who are regular claimers and there's a certain set of customers who have perhaps never claimed or or claimed once if there was something you know that that happened but it was it was a pure chance and they usually do not like the claims experience and they want to stay away from it okay and there is a certain set that uses it almost every second year or every year <laughs> right now your no claims bonus does capture it somewhat but it doesn't capture that mindset right because yeah. you may have had a claim last year but you may not have had a claim for the la- for the 5 years before that right? right and yes you can ask some questions but what you are saying starts to capture it a person who's concerned about will the garage that means they understand the claims process yeah that means they are a professional at this not not a professional you know what i mean I right? so they they yeah. they've been used to doing this right and that is that is what we found and that can pretty much make a difference of 1 is to 2 on your cost base i think uh, the second you know so india has a large third party element to motor insurance we we figured how to so all i'm saying is little little nudges and right. these are just examples with the thousands of these that we used over time to basically get a little smarter and that doesn't mean you don't cover the other customers you just highlight that you are higher risk and and that's fine you you are higher risk Right. and the price would be different right i mean that was the reason for the question around data how's that data used even if it's used in a way that's more subtle right by clues and by word clues it's still uh, use of data i want to ask you this too though you've been at this for a long time right so you've been interacting with incumbent insurance companies you know forever over time what do you think that and you don't you don't underwrite right so am i right there we don't underwrite but we are um fairly involved in that process but we do not take underwriting risk okay so if we're leaving the underwriting part of the insurance business to the big incumbent insurers or to the people that, or to the reinsurers right what are what are some of the other things that insurers should not be doing you mentioned claims you mentioned you know how you store the paperwork on the mobile phone what are their core competencies and where should insurtechs focus and add extra value i think on all of these see no insurer would want to hand over their underwriting expertise so what one can do is improve processes because because it's a fairly egocentric process right if yeah. the insurer hands over the pen to somebody then you know what exactly is the insurer doing right right so uh, but they are very keen to understand different data formats so you can be a data provider you can be a technology provider you can be an enabler you can do all of that stuff okay but i don't think you can say okay i'll i'll, I'll start pricing for you 
I think that goes a step too far. So the process we would follow, for example, is an open architecture process where we make all our data available, which pretty much gives you the answer. And if you want, we will run the simulation for you and we will do everything. But eventually you own your decision. And, and that is is critical, right? Because it's eventually the under uh, the the job is the insurers. And similarly in uh, underwriting, uh, whatever analytics we are putting in place, which are discovering between uh, false claims, correct claims, matching, uh, you know, very basic stuff. The moment a claim comes in within minutes, you need to be able to assess what all the customer had declared, right. not just on the uh, form, but also in their speech. Pick out those words, put them together and analyze if there was anything that was uh, a misdeclaration, a serious misdeclaration, and also assess what are not serious de misdeclarations and just, you know, little misses here and there. Right. And uh, basically solve for all of that. So I think anything that enables such stuff, anything that enables uh, uh, remote fulfillment is, is a great idea for insurers as long as eventually they implement it. So I think that's that's where insurtechs could focus. It's very difficult getting consumers. There's no doubt about it. So I think uh, trying to build a B two C business, uh, yeah, then then you better be sure that you know you are you are you know capable of getting those customers. So what's your view on partnering with companies like rideshare companies or e commerce companies to use their ability to acquire consumers or the consumers that they've already acquired as another form of distribution for insurance products? See, in India, I don't know about the rest of the world, uh, and I don't have a view there, uh, but in India, uh, there is very few companies that have uh, consumers and revenue, and both are challenged. And uh, what that implies is, if you have it, you really, really value it. And you know the value of it, of your consumer set. Sure. So eventually, that business belongs to the to the partner. It is not your business. Right. You You need to appreciate that you have almost zero ability. You know, if somebody believes that data analytics is their strength and other insurance companies will not do it, I think that is pipe dreaming because uh, there's enough capability in pretty much all the insur insurance companies to do the data grinding once that data is made available and the data is being made available by the carrier. So uh, I think there is volume, but there isn't profitability. Eventually, the moment you try to make any profit, uh, the insurance company will come in. And also the belief that you can use the data and then sell something else and make money of that. I am quite confident anybody who owns the customer will eventually take the value of that as well. Got it. Uh, because uh, that is absolutely replicable by any other player as well. So uh, I think uh, that is an area where one has to be very cautious that business I am usually not a big fan of B2B businesses because I think that business comes and goes very rapidly or or the margins get depleted quite rapidly as well. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a whole bunch of energy being spent and a whole bunch of technology being built to take companies like, I'm just going to make them up, right? Like Grab and Gojek and stuff like that to distribute insurance to non-policyholders and like the 97% of people in Southeast Asia that don't hold insurance policies yet. I've been slightly skeptical of this, but I'm willing to watch it play out to see how that happens. I think it will happen. Yeah. Uh, but I would be very surprised if Grab or Gocheck do not take 
95% or 100% of the profits, but maybe 110% of the profits. I, I see it all the time. You know, we have a we have a company, Pesa Bazaar, right? They yep, do yep. not do insurance. They they are a closed architecture. They can tie up with one insurer. The deals they get from insurers are almost unbelievable. Like I'm like, where is the insurer's money in this? <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm I'm doing 20 times their volume, but I don't get the same deals. And, and they are our company. They are 100% our subsidiary, right? Right. So, so I'll give you an example. I'm selling term Please. insurance. I'm selling, you know, let's say $5 million of term insurance for one company. They will sell $1 million, but they will make double the commissions at least. And I think uh, insurers, they'll always be, and because they don't have to sell everybody. Right. They just want to find the highest paying insurer. And so they will always find somebody willing to lose money for, for the short term, right? So I think... Uh, that's the reality of those businesses. Eventually, if uh, Alibaba uses Zongan to do something, then the value is in Alibaba, not in Zongan. Yeah, no, I'm not disagreeing with you. It's just, it's an alternative way of looking at it and not the, you know, the entire market is moving towards these alternative forms of distribution. But I tend to agree with you that it either it's A, it's not going to be successful and B, if it is, all that profit is going to get sucked out. I want to talk a little bit about something topical as well, COVID-19. How has this impacted like you both professionally meaning through policy bizarre but maybe a little bit of you as well if i mean i don't know anything right but i'm just curious what the impact is at least short to medium term okay the first one is very clear i think there were two trends one was a trend towards digital yep and the second was a trend towards uh, insurance core insurance health insurance life insurance both of them have speeded up uh, more people are concerned about health and life now than they were before COVID. Right. More people want to accomplish that digitally compared to through a physical format because, of course, with COVID, COVID basically acts against anything physical, right? So, right, right. So I think both those trends are very positive and we are uh, uh, hoping to at least triple to quadruple our market share. You know, our market share... Uh, was roughly about uh, three to five percent of the industry. We want to come out of this. My target is to come out of this twenty-five percent of the industry. It's a very aggressive target, and I don't think it's going to last a very short period. I think this whole thing is going to last almost a year at least. But I really think we can expand our market share out of this and become really huge. Now, uh, coming to personal, it's a it's a very strange situation of mine, right? In the sense, twelve years I have worked and lived in the in India. And my family has been in the UK. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So uh, the moment COVID happened and the and they started announcing flights are getting cancelled, I took the last flight and I reached the UK. Oh gosh. Uh, right. So yeah, the, the the good news is that all my management is also working from home and I'm also working from home. Right. The good news is also we have a very capable management team in the sense we have a new CEO for Policy Bazaar. We have Alok, Naveen, everybody. I think uh, depending on how the situation lasts uh, and plays out, uh, I do not know personally what happens uh, in in my situation because, uh, you know, imagine if I couldn't go to office for one year. Right. Right. Uh, That would be a strange one. Uh, And I don't know how keen my shareholders would uh, uh, be (laughs) to have me lead the company where I'm not in office for one year. So I think everything... Uh, works out eventually, but uh, but yeah, that's that's the current situation. That's really interesting. And, and of all the people to whom I've spoken, I don't know of another situation where someone has left the country in which their 
company was operating. Yeah, it's a very I, I unique situation. I had to make situation. a choice. Yeah, I had yeah. to make a choice. Either I was going to be with my wife and kids or I was going to be in the company. And uh, it was a pretty tough choice. I had to make it. I had one and a half hours to make it. And uh, I made that choice and I'm here. That's fascinating. I mean, there are so many other questions I want to ask you, but probably not appropriate for this uh, podcast. But are there other things that you're managing? So is your staff almost entirely working from home? They must be, right? Because it's almost complete yeah, yeah, lockdown absolutely. in India, right? So I think that was uh, something we were worried about. Because uh, remember, we, we do use a lot of customer support, right? Right. And our biggest worry was... So between Policy Bazaar and Pesa Bazaar, we're 13,000 employees. Yeah, I knew it was big. Right? Yeah. And uh, managing 13,000 employees in a work from home situation, will they have network? Will they have connectivity? They don't have laptops. They don't have uh, tablets working from just a mobile instead of a desktop where they used to sell. All our infrastructure was built for the desktops that they used to sell off or they used to communicate with the consumer off. I am amazed. That happened flawlessly. Really? Next day morning, 10 a.m., everybody was working from home. The app was ready. All our functionality, critical functionality was there. The amazing part is between 10 to 11, our sales were higher on the first day of work from home and every day of work from home compared to the day before that changed. The talk times were higher. The connectivity rates were higher. Everything. And when I think back on this, I can only think of one thing. There was almost zero involvement from the senior management team. And I mean that. Right. And in a sense, obviously, we are involved. Right. Right. But it wasn't like we were doing anything. And what that points out to is a very deep management at Policy Bazaar. Very, very deep. There are about 200 to 400 people in the, in the company who, according to me, are totally committed like founders. Right. And that is crazy. That I have not seen in many places because uh, these guys, these guys just just did it. They just did it because please understand these 13,000 people uh, odd report eventually to about 1,000 people because there's about 15 to 1 ratio, right? About So there's about 800 people managing people. And there's, of course, IT, there's infrastructure, there's, you know, product. Everything has continued flawlessly and uh, nothing has fallen. There's not a single thing that has fallen. So uh, I think uh, there's uh, amazing uh, you know, uh, depth of management. And I'm, I'm personally very, very impressed by that. Yeah, you should be really proud, actually. What do you think, because I, I don't think this is a short-term thing either, and I think there are going to be some secular changes around the way people organize. I know, I'm trying to remember what year it was, but Marissa Meyer famously, when she got to Yahoo, um, originally canceled all the remote working. I mean, technology was different back then. We didn't have all the tools that we have today, but still the idea was I want everybody in the office so I can manage everybody. Today, that's probably not as necessary. But I wonder going forward, let's just say this dies down and there's a um, you know a vaccine and everybody's safe and feels fine again, and we're not all walking around wearing masks or you know sheltering in place. Do you need office space really then? Do you know what I mean? So we have uh, we have already made a decision that at least 40% of our staff will stay work from home uh, for the long term. What the long term means is after COVID is dead and gone. Right. Right. And that's the minimum. We may move to higher than that. Right. It may be 70, 80%. We are already prepared that initially what will happen is some form of coming back into office would be allowed, which would mean about 20% of staff can come in. 
and uh, we we we'd see how that you know who's who's most appropriate to come in etc so that stuff we'll do but i see as a long term trend as we open offices in chennai which we needed to which is south of india because it has different languages etc yep i don't see us opening offices i see us uh, just doing work from home so i think remote working is definitely here to stay uh, i wouldn't be uh, bold enough to say it's going to become 100% yet because there are a lot of people in our company who like the the management thing and we are quite a democratic company in that so it's not like one person decides and everybody but if i had my way i would go 100% work from home and what do you think the implication is like this is maybe not your thing but coming from a bain background if you put your bain cap back on as a strategist what do you think the implication is long term for you know office offer office prices yeah much oh office spaces uh, yeah. the implication is quite poor in the sense uh, i think they will have to you know there used to be a premium to have a, you know a commercial property right i think now there be a premium to have a residential property yeah so clearly residences will have to become better because uh, my biggest worry is as the summer comes most of my employees don't have air conditioning at home i understand right and uh, the office used to be a, a nice place from that perspective well a haven in some cases yeah yeah so i think uh, we would have to do more to make sure their houses are better and uh, they have better internet connectivity they have more they are more comfortable and that means we'll have to pay more at the same time our office costs will go down right so i see that as a trend across the board you know uh, people will have better homes and uh, they don't really need an office as much and that but, but one has to see how long it lasts right if it doesn't last too long people tend to forget and they kind of get back to the comfort of the office so i think office all the feedback i have received the office was a place where people enjoyed the jokes they enjoyed the the camaraderie they enjoyed all that stuff yeah other than that it wasn't adding much value yeah no i understand people like to gather right in places that's why people go to rock, we're social rock animals yeah yeah that's why yeah, they go to rock social animals and, yeah don't listen to records Okay, I mean I have a ton more questions for you but I don't want to take up any more of your time. I really appreciate you doing this today. Um and thanks for being so flexible with technology as well. I really appreciate that. Thank too. you. Thank you, Michael. She's Tanya, the founder and chief executive officer of Policy Bazaar. Awesome to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you.